Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Brenton, if we have not met, and I'm one of the pastors here at VBF, and it is a joy and honor to be together this morning. Today, we are going to finish up the series that we've been in called Big Questions. And the purpose, or our goal in this series, was to take some of the biggest theological questions that people face and address them and hopefully provide a foundation of right or sound doctrine, uh, that we would understand rightly what the truth is in regard to these areas. And this is the last Sunday of that series. Uh, We're going to finish with one final question today, and then uh, next week we'll be turning to the letter of Philippians, which I am super excited for because Philippians is one of my favorite letters in the Bible, and so uh, that is going to be uh, a great time together. So before we uh, talk about our question this morning, let's, um, let's pray. Father God, we glorify you this morning for the love that you have shown us. Jesus, we thank you for the love that you displayed in your death and in your resurrection purchasing us and and redeeming us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what we just celebrated with communion, that it was your body and your blood that was shed for us. And Holy Spirit, 
We thank you that you have poured the love of the Father into our hearts, your word says. I ask that if there's anyone here who has not received you, that you would do a work in their heart this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask that as we come to your word, you would teach us. You would open our eyes to behold the truth. You'd keep us faithful to the truth in the Bible. And you'd teach us to live in light of the truth that we study today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And we ask for your help, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Can I lose my salvation? That is the question before us this morning. And it's a very important question for the life of every Christian. Because it's a question that is so much a part of all of our experiences in life. If you've been a Christian for a significant amount of time, you've likely had a friend or somebody that you know that at one point professed faith in Christ, regularly attended church, even talked about God with others, but who has since walked away from the faith. And that can be a deeply painful experience, even more so when that person is a family member. I can remember growing up uh, attending a large youth group in town, and when I think now how many of those that I attended youth group with are following the Lord, it's heartbreaking because it's not many. It can be a very painful experience in life. But this question doesn't just affect our relationship with other people, it also affects us personally. In seasons of life when you are struggling with doubt, this is a really important question. There can be a great sense of fear that can come over a Christian who's worried about losing the most precious gift they have. In seasons where we are struggling and fighting against sin, uh, there can often be a wrestle with, am I really saved? I, I mean, I thought I was, but I've just been struggling and fighting so long. Have I lost the salvation I thought I once had? And even in seasons of suffering in life, when we're going through trials, whether physical or with people around us, uh, sometimes we can doubt the goodness of God. And in those seasons, it's so important to know, is that firm foundation of salvation there or have I lost it? And finally, if you're here uh, or watching online and you're not a Christian, this question really gets at the nature of what it means to be saved. It really is um, the nature of what it means uh, to be a Christian and what Christians believe. And so um, if even just to merely know what Christians believe, you should listen. But also if you are interested in becoming a Christian, this is what it means to be saved by God. So, to navigate this question, I'd like to uh, give you kind of a roadmap of where I'd like to go this morning in the sermon. And I want to consider four things together. The first thing I want to consider is our perspective when addressing this question. The second thing I want to talk about is the nature of salvation. The third thing I want to look at is the promises of God. 
And then the fourth thing I want to talk about is our response. So our perspective, the nature of salvation, the promises of God, and our response. We're going to go through a lot of scripture, and so I'm going to ask you to, if, if you're turning in your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to five different places. The rest of them you don't need to worry about, but the first place you can turn is 1 Samuel chapter 16. That is the verse that we're going to look at first, and I'll give you a second to get there because uh, sometimes the Old Testament is hard to navigate. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the first thing that I want to talk about this morning is our perspective with this question. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by our perspective when talking about this question? Well, I want to look at this verse to find out. First uh, Samuel chapter 16, to give you a picture of what's going on, the prophet Samuel has been commissioned by God to anoint a new king for Israel. And he tells him it's going to be someone from the family of Jesse. And so the Lord sends Samuel to Jesse's family. And in verse 6, we see that Samuel comes and he sees Eliab, which is Jesse's firstborn son, the one that has the most prominent position in the family, the one who's the oldest, the most experienced. And Samuel looks at him and says, surely this is the guy. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But listen to what the Lord says to Samuel in response. Verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What is our perspective? Our perspective is the outward appearance. What is the Lord's perspective? The heart. The Lord sees the heart. And so I think right up front, when talking about matters of salvation, it's crucial that we understand that we are not God. That we do not see the hearts of other people, as well as we feel like we may know somebody. Even the relationship of a husband and wife, which I think would be the, probably the closest relationship we have on the earth, we do not see their heart how the Lord sees their heart. The Lord knows everything about the heart. We see the outward appearance. We see what people say, how they act. And so when it comes to the experience, specifically with seeing other people walk away from the faith, if we're thinking about others now, I think it can be tempting for us to play God. I think uh, we can say, oh, I know them. I know them. They, they really are saved, and they've walked away, but they just need to come back. They really are saved. I mean, I know them. Or, or I know them. Uh, yeah, they, they actually never really were saved, and they finally walked away. I knew it all along. Or, or I know them. They were saved, but I think they've turned their back on God for good now. I don't think there's any coming back from this. And do you see what this kind of thinking does? We are putting ourselves in the position of God. And all these statements, we're saying we know the heart when God says that only he knows the heart. The scripture is clear that God is the only one who knows the heart truly, truly and fully. He knows every thought, every intention, every motivation, everything. 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word, of the, God, the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. And so we need to treat others based on what we see before our eyes. That's the takeaway from considering our perspective. We need to see others based on what we see before our eyes. So if it looks like someone has walked away from God, it's not our job to determine the state of their salvation. It's our job to invite them back into the grace of God, to call them back to Christ, to repentance and to faith in Jesus once again. And so we need to remember this perspective. We need to remember that really in this question, we can only truly examine our own hearts in this area. And when we understand we're not God, we will approach this with humility. Theology should always be done with humility. Theology done without humility is theology done wrong. Theology is the study of God. We are the creatures studying our creator. And if we don't come with humility, we've come in the wrong manner. And so we need to approach this topic with humility and with considering our own hearts. So that's the first thing we'll consider, our perspective. Now, to actually answer the question, we need to consider the nature of salvation. Because really, this question is a question about salvation. Can I lose my salvation? Well, it depends. What is salvation? Uh, that will help us determine what it means if we can lose it or not. So, uh, if you would now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to head to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2. And that is the next verse we'll look at. And I'll give you a second to get there. Paul is writing here to the church at Ephesus. And it's a really beautiful letter. And uh, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Considering the nature of salvation. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Who is Paul speaking to here? Well, Paul is not speaking to those who were once physically dead and now are not. That, that doesn't make sense. So in what manner is he saying you once were dead? Well, he's saying that they were spiritually dead. This is the state of every person who has not believed in Jesus. Spiritually dead. Further, in verse 3, he says... And you were, by nature, children of wrath. He says, by your very nature, we are sinful and spiritually dead. We have inherited from our first father, Adam, a sinful nature. And so all of us have sinned against God and have fallen short of his glory. And everyone apart from God is spiritually dead. That's the state of our hearts. That means there's no amount of goodness in us to overcome sin. There's no amount of good deeds that we can do to make up for our sin. We are by nature sinners against the one true holy God. And we deserve his wrath. It is just. It is good wrath because it is just. And so pretty bad news. But here is the good news. Here is the incredible news of salvation. In verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us. I mean, how incredible is this? We've already seen that people have sinned against God, and yet God, in response, is merciful, rich in mercy, full of abundant love. This is the creator. How incredible. And then he goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So again, there we see spiritually dead again, that idea. Even when we were dead, he loved us. So it, it wasn't because, that God looked down on us and he said, you know what, I think that um, he's got some great characteristics and this person's done some really good things for me. And um, you know what, this person over here, they're really deserving to be saved. You know, this person, oh, this woman over here, she really deserves to be saved. God's, lo- God's love for us is not, God's salvation in our life is not based on our merits. It's based solely upon his love, his overflowing, never-ending astounding, steadfast love. It is all God. It is all based upon his love that he has saved us. And here, we see the incredible nature of salvation at the end of verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. So here's where we see what salvation really is. To be saved does not mean you're just handed a get out of jail free card, or you are just finding shelter from a storm, or you just have your debts erased. Although it does mean those, it does mean that your debts are erased, and that's a beautiful part of salvation. But to be saved does not mean that we are simply given something, it means we are changed. It means we are made alive when we were spiritually dead. Second Corinthians, Paul writes, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To be saved means we are made new. We are made alive. And so when we approach the question, can I lose my salvation? We have to understand that salvation is not a gift that we receive. Again, it is a gift. It's not just this. It's not a gift we receive that we carry around and maybe we put it down, forget where it is, and then we find it again and almost lost it. Salvation is the renewal of our hearts. Salvation is the changing of who we are. A true believer, a true believer, and again, the perspective, only God sees the heart and knows who the true believer is, but a true believer cannot lose his or her salvation. Consider how the Bible speaks about salvation. It speaks about someone being saved as going from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. It speaks of somebody being born again. It speaks of somebody becoming a new creation, the old passing away. It speaks of somebody being spiritually blind, and then God opens the eyes of the blind. And it speaks of us as spiritual orphans who are adopted and brought into the family of God and called a child of God. This is what it means to be saved. And so if we think about, can we lose this? Well, it would be a very fearful state to live in if we could. Every time we struggle, every time we sin, every time we go through a season of doubt or struggle with the Lord, are we unadopted from the family? 
kicked out and then brought back in when we get our lives back together and then kicked out of the family again and brought back in when we get our lives together? Are we spiritually killed? And then when we get it together, we're spiritually made alive again. And then when we sin, we're spiritually killed. And then we're spiritually made alive together. If we see the nature of salvation as God describes it, we understand that this is a once-for-all change in the life of the believer. The old has passed away, and it is gone, and it is not coming back. Salvation is God's work, and he does not fail in his work. That is the nature of salvation. But we can look to the Bible not just to understand the nature of salvation and so answer this question of can I lose my salvation. We can also look to God's word to see the promises of God. So the third thing I want to consider is the precious promises of God. If you turn in your Bible to John chapter 10, that is where we'll be next. And I want us to look at these um, together because I think it's important that we see where they're coming from. It's funny, when I was younger I, um, and growing up in church, I used to be bothered because uh, I was like, man, we're singing about the promises of God, and I'm hearing uh, preached to trust the promises of God. And I was like, I don't know if I know any of the promises of God. <laughs> growing up, I just didn't have any that I knew would come to mind. And so if that's you this morning, let me give you three. <laughs> let me give you three that you can hold on to, that you can keep in your back pocket, and they're just beautiful promises from the Lord. John chapter 10, Jesus has just told us a beautiful statement about who he is. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he goes on to explain that, and he's having a conversation with some of the Jews. And uh, we're going to look at John chapter 10, verse 27. Is where we'll look now. And we get this beautiful promise from, from Jesus. He says, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to you? He's saying that he is a shepherd, and he is a shepherd who does not lose a single one of his sheep. His sheep will never perish. No one will snatch them out of his hand. And it's, it's like, it, if you struggled to even think of, oh, well, well, this in regard to Jesus, he then elevates it and says, oh, also my father. My father's the one who's given them to me. He's greater than everyone. And they cannot be snatched out of my Father's hand. The promise is that for those who are truly saved, we can never be taken from our good shepherd. The next one we'll look at is Romans 8. This is what Helen read for us this morning. Romans chapter 8. And I love this passage. The book of Romans is has to be the greatest exposition of the gospel and all the truths in it. And really, Romans chapter 8 is the culmination of all that Paul talked about beforehand and all of his explaining of the good news of salvation. <clears throat> and I want us to look at Romans 8 verse 35. 
Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So he lists every notion of suffering or trial or persecution that I could think of. And he says, what will separate us? Will any of these things, will any of these trials, any of these enemies, any of this suffering separate us? He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In every trial of life, we are conquerors through Christ. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you get a more emphatic promise than that? Nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God. If you are a Christian, that means you have been united to Christ. And here is the promise that nothing will separate you from his love. I love that. Last passage and promise, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Excited that we'll be in Philippians soon. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul. And he writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What work has God started in us? The work of salvation. Uh, when we are saved, in that moment, the moment we believe, the time we believe, we are immediately forgiven of the penalty of sin. The penalty is gone. Our debts have been erased. We are forgiven of our sins. But as anyone knows, we still struggle with sin. The presence of sin is very much alive in our lives. As we grow in our faith, and as we live our lives, by the power of the Spirit in us, we are able to overcome the power of sin. We're able to actually grow and change and overcome sin in our life by the power of the Spirit in us. But we will never be perfect in this life. It is only one day when Christ returns or when we die that we will be completely and totally freed from the presence of sin. And so while salvation starts in us when we believe, what does it say? that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I love this. This verse is a promise that God always finishes what he starts. God always gets the job done. And it's not ultimately in my hands, which is so comforting and assuring. It is ultimately in the hands of God. If salvation is God's work, that means that salvation never fails because God never fails. God will finish the job. What he has started, he will finish. Consider these promises. No one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. 
No one will snatch you out of the hand of the good shepherd. There is nothing in all of life that will separate you from the love of Christ. And what God has started in you, he will finish. These promises can give us comfort. These promises can give us assurance. These promises can give us hope and joy in the trials of life, in the suffering of life, in the seasons of sin, in the seasons of doubt. They can give us assurance that our God is in control and he is holding us fast. We can sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. How great the promises of God are. Hopefully this helps answer the question, but we have one more thing to consider. We've considered our perspective, how we should approach this question. We've considered the nature of salvation to answer the question. And we've considered the promises of God. But lastly, what is our response? How should we respond to these truths? Well, I think first we can say that we should find assurance and comfort and joy in the promises of God, what we just talked about. I think that's a proper response to considering these things. But our second response, or the second thing we should consider as a response, is that we are to persevere in our faith. We are to fight sin. We are to pursue God and his kingdom. To know that our salvation is secure in no way should cause somebody to sit back and go, now I don't need to do anything. I was recently reading a book by John Owen um, called Communion with God, and he was listing objections to what he was writing about. He was writing about the grace of God. He was listing objections and answering them. And um, he was talking about how God's grace completely forgives us of our sins. And the objection he brought up was, was, is, and it's one that Paul brings up in Romans. He says, well, does that mean we can just continue to sin and go on sinning if God's grace covers it all? And Paul in Romans answers it emphatically, but also graciously. But John Owen just writes, if you're asking that question, it tells me you've not understood what I just said. (laughs) I want to say it a little more graciously than that. But (laughs) if you're asking the question, does this mean that I just get to sit back and do nothing and sin all I want? You've not understood the truth that we're talking about. To know that our salvation is secure should do the opposite in us. It should cause us to full-heartedly, wholeheartedly pursue God, to fight sin, and to persevere until the end. I have several verses here. You don't need to turn to them. But in Colossians, uh, Paul writes again, and he uses the statement, you once were, and now you are, similar to how he wrote in Ephesians. He says, you once were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you to himself in order that he might one day present you holy and blameless before God. It's a beautiful truth. But then he says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Do not shift from the hope you've heard. Continue in the faith. The book of Hebrews is filled with warnings to the believers to persevere, to continue on. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, for if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In the famous Hebrews chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I think the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. The Apostle Paul understood the grace of God in such a beautiful way. I mean, he penned Romans. He penned Romans chapter 8 that we just read. Nothing can separate us from his love. And yet Paul was a man who ran after God. At the end of his life, he said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. In Philippians, he says, uh, he's talking about the resurrection um, of the dead that is, that is one day to come. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. And I love that. In Paul's mind, the fact that Christ has purchased him, redeemed him, made him his own, makes him want to press on all the more to make it his own. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so while the Bible is clear, it gives us these promises. No one can snatch you out of the shepherd's hand. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And he will finish the work he started in us. We are still responsible to persevere and to pursue the Lord until the very end. Paul strove, fought, ran the race of faith until the very end. These promises don't negate our freedom and responsibility to pursue and hold fast to Christ. Rather, they should motivate us to do that. And I think the end of the letter of Jude holds these two things really well and really beautifully. Um, Jude writes in verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in his love. And then at the end of the letter, when he writes his doxology, he says, now to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you see it? Keep yourselves knowing and trusting that he is keeping you. Hold fast to Christ, knowing and trusting that he is holding you. I think this is the, the tension that we are to come to live in. I'm going to invite the uh, music team back up, and we're going to sing one final song. But as they come up, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your great and precious promises. Lord, I thank you for the joy and the comfort and the peace that it fills my heart with, specifically that Romans verse, to know that nothing, nothing in heaven and on earth, angels nor rulers, uh, things present nor things to come, height nor depth, nothing in all creation will separate me from your love. And so, Lord, I pray for every true Christian here this morning. I pray that these promises would bring comfort to their hearts as they consider them, as they think about them.
pray that you'd use them. I pray that you'd use these promises to spur us on, to pursue you all the more. And lastly, Lord, I pray for anyone here who is not a true believer. Maybe as we've been talking this morning, the scales have fallen off their eyes. Maybe there was no way that they related to anything that we said about salvation. They're, they're not a changed person. They're not a new person. They haven't seen you work in their life, and they're realizing it, Lord. Lord, would you save them this morning? Would you, in their hearts, give them uh, the confidence to forsake all sin and to pursue you and trust you and put their faith solely in you? Lord, would you do that this morning? We thank you for your word. We thank you for the time together to worship you. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing one final song together?